when Samuel went down to Jesse's house to pick the king of Israel, God moved him to identify King David as king. It was there in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that Samuel said, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Most of us make judgments based on externals and outward expressions that we can see. But the New Testament stress, and I'm going to argue even the Old Testament stress, has always looked at the response of the heart as the key telling metric for what is going on. The critical matter is the matter of the heart. It's why in the law of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Hear the word of the Lord. It's so easy to define relating to God in some other way than how the word of God defines it and reveals it to us. Let's take Calvary Baptist Church. Two Sundays in the next three Sundays, we will celebrate the baptisms of several candidates who will present themselves to the body. They're going to be two great Sundays, September the 11th and September the 25th, the Lord willing. What are we to conclude about the people who will be baptized? Now, The Bible says that baptism is an outward expression of the inward reality of God's work to bring us to himself. We are born again. We are brought into his family. We are given life. The fancy theological term is we are regenerated. And that makes sense to us. Genesis is beginning, prefix re. It's like a re-genesis a start over, a brand new start. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passing away. Behold, all new things have come. What are we to conclude about those folks? Well, does this mean those folks are now okay with God? You know, they did it as if the point was to be religious and do religious things like check the box of being baptized. I've done it, Eric. Or are they simply obeying the New Testament pattern of going through this ceremony that's a picture of what God has already accomplished inside that is unseen, and we celebrate it with this identification with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Even the posture of immersion takes us right to the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to save us. And when he brings us into his family, we celebrate it through this act. But that's much different than let's go through some religious exercise and check that box. Oh yeah, I've been baptized. Have you ever talked to somebody who their default mechanism, I remember I was uh, trying to share the Lord with my 
neighbor a few years back and I was turning the conversation. He immediately sensed what was going on and he said, oh, I'll tell you what, I was an elder. I go, what? Yeah, yeah, years, I was an elder at that church years ago. I was there. Yeah, yeah, I was there. As if whatever he had done years ago was vouching for his position before God and he wanted me to know, yeah, I was, I was an elder back over there at that church. I said, great, you know. He did it. He did it. You ever been left in those conversations with the impression that they were trusting in those activities as confidence that they were okay with God? They did it. Where ought our confidence lie? Is it in the external religious rites that we get involved in? Or is it rather an issue of our heart and whether Jesus has given us a new one or not? Is it our heart response to what he has done, or is it what we do in religious acts that makes us right with God? What if it isn't that religious people are right with God? As we start through the book of Romans, it's a fascinating book. Paul first introduces himself and his purpose in the gospel. Then he starts talking about what your average garden variety church uh, attending person would say, that wicked world out there, Romans 1, and is not that an approximation of what is going on? Uh, They need Jesus. And all the religious people say, yeah, they do. And all the self-righteous moral people say, boy, they, they, that crowd, they're messed up. They need, yeah, they, they, little Jesus couldn't hurt them. But then he, he walks over in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and he puts his arm around the moral person, and he says to him, you know what, friend? You need Jesus too. It's not your goodness. It's the perfections of Jesus. But now he really goes to meddling. Because he puts his arm around religious people who they're, you know, they're fine with God. They've checked the boxes. And in Romans 2, 17 through 29, what he's doing is he is talking to the religious people who have confidence that they are okay because they are religious. Now, to host this discussion, he in particular runs after Jewish people. Now, The world of the first century is made up of two people as you read through the prism of the New Testament. It's Jews and Gentiles. It's everybody who's not Jewish. Now, remember that the the Jewish people are Abraham's children distinguished by the unique promises God gave to Abraham. And one of the things that made the Jewish people distinct was this act of circumcision For the males, it was a sign of fidelity to the covenant, of faithfulness, of of we own the promises of Abraham, so we will go through this. And you talk about the ultimate religious insurance, or so they thought, was, hey, I've been circumcised. And so Paul puts his arms around people having confidence that they've checked some religious boxes and they're okay. And he says, you know what, friends? Did you know that the wicked world out there needs Jesus? And the religious people say, boy, they sure do. 
He said, do, do, do you know that the, uh, the self-righteous moral people, yeah, they upset me. I don't like them. You know, they, they need Jesus, don't they? Yes, they do. Now, I got something else to tell you. You know, religious people, yeah, you mean people have been circumcised. People have jumped through those religious hoops and done the things you're supposed to do. Yeah, those, they need Jesus too. What? Are you kidding? Why would we need Jesus when we've checked off all those boxes? Because I thought the whole thing was to check off the boxes. That's what he's doing in these verses. So let's look at them together and study them. Romans 2, 25 through 29. For circumcision... Indeed, is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God, here the word of the Lord. Now, one commentator said, here the Apostle Paul, a man named Haldane, the Apostle Paul pursues the Jew into his last retreat and proceeds to strip them of the last refuge they took. Hey, we're okay. We've been circumcised. Jim Boyce said, the Jews had one last card to play for the apostle Paul. And it was, hey, gotcha. We've done it. You've done what? We've been circumcised. And so Paul runs after them and he addresses misplaced confidence when it comes to faith. Remember, one of our four great words is rely. What do we rely upon? It is possible to rely upon, you fill in the blank. I did it, religious exercise. Joined the church, got baptized. By the way, I'm, I'm for both of those. But I'm not for anyone trusting in doing that as the means of their confidence to be accepted by God. Because if that's all we needed, why did God send Jesus? Didn't he make a mistake? For Jesus to suffer if all you needed to do was check a couple religious boxes like join the church and uh, get baptized or be involved in church and attend worship services. By the way, I'm so grateful that you are here this morning. So that's what Paul is addressing. Now, we're going to go two different directions this morning. First is the I did it direction. And second is the God did it direction. If you want to understand faith, just look at the center of the interaction and ask, who is the hero? Is it man and what he has done? Or is it God and what he accomplished in Jesus Christ? That is gospel Christianity. I don't know what this is, acting religious. Now, 
let's look at this together. Number one, there is a long history of religious people wanting to do something to prove that they are on good terms with God. This is not new. And Paul's dealing with it in the first century. It's as alive in our century as it was in that century. Don't forget Resume Man. Remember Resume Man in Luke 18? He wanted to present to God his resume. Here's a few lines of it. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Why? Read a few more lines, Lord. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. By the way, remember, resume man is not the one Jesus identified in Luke 18 as the man who went down justified. It was the other man who saw God for who he was, saw himself for who he is, and simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, there are two probing thoughts here under point one. There's a long history of religious people wanting to do something to prove that they are on good terms with God. For the Jewish people in the first century, the big box to check was circumcision. And they would check that and put it in their back pocket. And if they're pressed, hey, what about you and God? Tell you what, circumcised, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Really? In the ancient world, the uncircumcised were considered godless. And the God-fearers were circumcised. Remember what David says when he gets to the camp to see his brothers and Goliath is terrorizing the whole army of Israel? David says of Goliath, this, remember what he called him? Uncircumcised Philistine. Shall be like one of them. He said, look, I I faced the lion, tore his head off, or whatever he did. I faced the bear, look, After facing those, the Lord help me, Goliath will be like one of them. But he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Now, what's interesting is even all these years hence, that's several millennia, the term Philistine still has currency in the English language. (laughs) If you want to insult someone who is... uh, just a barbarian, you know. They say, what's wrong with that Philistine? You know, it, there's still an association with uh, godless, out-of-bounds living. That, that guy was living like a Philistine. But he also says he's uncircumcised. Now, what did that mean? Well, for a Jewish person, an uncircumcised person was a person who had no fear of God before his eyes. He had no demonstrable deference For God in his holiness who had revealed himself at Sinai. He didn't care what the sign of the covenant was because he wasn't at all considering God's interaction with man to reveal himself. So circumcision, smircumcision, who cares? No part of it. They were uncircumcised. So David calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. So this long history of, in Judaism, circumcision gave people confidence that, hey, they were okay with God because they were not the godless sorts. This brings us to Michelangelo's David in Florence. Have any of you ever seen it? Have any of you have been to Florence to see it? 
Kathy, have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Um, I've never been there. I've seen pictures. It's extraordinary. Now, uh, when asked what is the most extraordinary thing about Michelangelo's David, he's uncircumcised. Was Michelangelo making a statement? This is the great historic debate. And there, there's various theories in that. But uh, was Michelangelo making a statement, making sport of what it meant to defer to God in such a way among the Jewish people? Was it a statement of rebellion? Remember Resume Man. He presents his resume. Well, how about, maybe you've never considered him such, how about Vomit Man? What about Jonah? Remember when he's vomited on the beach? Do you remember the first thing he said after he's vomited on the beach? Remember God said, I want you to take good news to the Assyrians that they can repent. And what did he do? He ran this way, as far away as he could, and took a ride for three days in the yellow submarine, you know, of course, and was spit up on the beach. Here's what he said as soon as he gets on the beach. Jonah 2.10. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He will save the Assyrians if he wants to whether or not I want to take the message to them. Begrudgingly, he goes there. And God used his word in a saving way among those people and delivered them from despair. Now, all of the gospel, remember Romans 1.1, God's gospel. This is what Paul's unpacking here, and it's glorious. All of the gospel can be understood in the three words of Titus 3.5, the three words that start Titus 3.5. Remember eighth grade grammar? I don't remember too much about it either. Mrs. Pallant tried to help me get it. I didn't get it until I had to work backwards through Spanish. And I thought, oh, that's what she was trying to tell me when I was in the eighth grade. He, the subject, saved the verb. The subject is the actor. Who is he? It's God. He, what does he do? He saves. Who? Us. We who believe, the savor is he, God. The saving is done by the Savior, and he saves us. We don't save ourselves by checking boxes and being religious. A careful study of the grammar of those three terms, and you get the whole enchilada. You understand the gospel. Now, Paul's going to take 16 chapters in the book of Romans to explain God's good news to us and then what a good news life looks like. That's chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. What a great book. What a privilege to go through it. First probing thought in the ancient world, the circumcised were considered godless and the God-fearers were circumcised. In our day, baptism and church membership and church involvement are relied upon for credit or merit before God. This is kind of the equivalent of circumcision for the Jewish people. Rely, one of our four great words, upon what do we rely? Circumcision was a sign and a token of belief in the covenant promises to Abraham. And there was good reason why they continued this habit through the years. I mean, in their writings, Rabbi Menachem said, Our rabbis have said that no uncircumcised man will see hell. In the Midrash, a gathering, a collection of writings and musings by Jewish, in Jewish literature, 
There's a line that says, and I quote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. By the way, today I don't know anyone relying upon circumcision as their religious ticket to be found acceptable by God. But I've been suspicious along the way of folks who are relying on church membership or baptism or some religious activity as their great confidence. Sure, Eric, I'm religious. What do you think I am? You know, do you think I'm an uncircumcised Philistine? No, I'm, I'm, I'm religious. And that's what he's going after in these six verses. The Apostle Paul is bringing us to realize that checking religious boxes and being involved in those externals, the I did it, I'm religious, will not pass muster. My grandfather preached for a while, was an earthy sort, had a sixth grade education. Uh, Kind of a mountain boy, or at least a foothill boy. And he used uh, real just down-to-earth metaphors and spoke with uh, kind of candid clarity. I remember he had a line. He'd use it a couple times. Now, just because you join the moose organization, you will not turn into a moose. Well, I thought of Grandpa this week as I was going through here. Because a lot of people think, hey, if I just get involved in some religious gestures, then I'll be okay. I'll feel better about myself. And uh, isn't feeling better about myself, what this is about anyway. And so I'll, I'll just I'll be religious a little bit, and uh, then, then I'll be fine. We can be sincerely mistaken, and it's tragic. My sister and Andy, my wife and I, took my mom out to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We picked them up in Ohio and had to go across Pennsylvania, which, you know, only seems like about six days to cross it, you know, from Wheeling to Philadelphia. But anyway, uh, I don't enjoy the Pennsylvania Turnpike of all the roads, you know, and Washington, PA, and that was back in the day. It's different now. You know, they, they shoot your license plate and stick you the bill in the mail for you. But anyway, uh, pull up Washington, PA, get a kiosk, run clear over to Lancaster and get off and before we bullet for the Shady Maple as quick as we can. Uh, before we see the play, you know, we, we got to pay. So we're rolling up on, you know, you got to pay tolls, slow down, that kind of thing. And my mom from the back seat says, now, Eric, I'm going to take care of this. Mom, that's great. So, uh, and I'd been across there before, and, and so I knew what was before us. And um, she hands up a $5 bill from the back seat. Well, um, I was a little amused by it, but I just let it play out because I thought it would, it would, it would you know, it, this part of my heart that's not very sanctified, you know, would it sting better if I wouldn't share with her. So, so I take the $5 bill, we roll up, and the lady said, okay, give me your ticket. So I gave her the ticket. She said, that'll be $36. And my sister and I, and we just start dying laughing. And mom, mom's like, I can't believe how much that is. I go, mom, do you think five bucks is going to care for that? No, she sincerely wanted to help. She fully was convinced that that would cover everything and that we were going to be fine through that kiosk. She couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, like $31 more wrong. But I love it that it happened. Now we, we don't let my mother forget that. You know, we, we just, we hold her against that. There's a long history of religious people wanting to do something to prove that they're on good terms with God. These verses 
argue against that. Now, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is about what God did through Jesus Christ. This is God's gospel. What is Paul driving at in these six verses that speak to our heart? How does this shape us? These verses shape our hearts in two different ways. Number one, participating in religious acts is no substitute for having a responsive heart to Jesus. Look at verse 26. Going through the spiritual motions is not the same as being alive unto God through Jesus Christ. You see, this sober deduction from this passage would have been a high insult to a Jewish person who was very proud of the fact that they had this religious pedigree of they were circumcised. They're part of God's elite. And so Paul comes on, has his arm around him. He loves him, so he tells him the truth. He says, you know what? Let's just take the uncircumcised Philistine. The uncircumcised Philistine who lives in this God-saturated world and has the law of God written on his heart and begins to fear this God and shapes his life, he has more of a circumcised heart than you do. Whatever your circumcision is, it hasn't helped you because... The integrity of true faith shows itself up in how we live. Oh, that was a high insult, because if all you're doing is trusting in that circumcision card you got out in the back of your pocket, oh, that was an insult to you. Notice the words that he uses. Two times he uses break and keep, as in breaking the law and obeying, keeping. Verses 25, verse 26, verse 27. Then he uses outward and inward. And we're all given to use these outward metrics. Oh, we're okay. Look, look at, look at how, how we are. Where all along, God is running, verse 29, after our hearts. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Not by the letter of the law that you read and try to outwardly conform to. It's about the heart. A matter of the heart. Has it dawned upon us that God isn't impressed with our religious formalism? John Stott said, I love this quote. It's one of those I kind of wish I'd have written. Their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved they were not. Their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved that they were not. It's so important. We hide our true selves from each other in our concern to appear right. One of the pitfalls of our religious involvement is that we can deceive ourselves. I'm okay. Look what I'm doing outwardly. Look what I'm doing. Circumcision box check, baptism, Lord's table, you know, doing some religious stuff, even accidentally found myself in a Bible study, you know. I'm okay. It is possible to be involved in externals and internally be completely in a different place. Remember the little boy in preschool? You've heard this. Little boy in preschool. I mean, he's unhinged one day, and he gets a, a power super timeout. And uh, so he's, he's, he's reprimanded. He's seated in a chair. 
And he's not finished with all of the uh, kinetic activity he wanted to be involved in that day. And there was some more pyrotechnics inside his heart. So he looked straight in the face of the teacher and he said to her, I want you to know that I'm sitting down on the outside, but I am standing up on the inside. It is possible to externally go through motions that misrepresent our heart. I'm glad you're here this morning. Isn't this a little bit of a religious motion? Where are our hearts? What is your measure of gospel faithfulness? How about this? Love for Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. And a love so moving that it shapes how we live. second way these verses uh, speak to our hearts is that salvation is evident when our hearts and our lives are being changed by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 25 and look at verse 29. Remember that old song? I've been changed. I've been newborn. All my life has been rearranged. What a difference. Remember that song? Is there any difference? Have we been changed? Not conformity to externals and new religious habits. I mean, a change inside out. I mean, verse 29, kind of matter of the heart. Uh, Inwardly, remember he contrasts outwardly, verse 28, with inwardly, verse 29. Larry Crabb wrote a book a while ago called Inside Out, in which he argued that we mature spiritually from the inside out, and the work always starts in our heart. There's a unique kind of wound. I forget. I should have consulted with somebody in medicine. There's a unique kind of wound that they don't close up, top down. It heals bottom up, as it were, inside out. And when it's finished, the close is perfect because it is healed inside out. There's not been any topical address that will mask what's going on underneath. It's just raw and comes and heals inside out. When Adam walked out of the garden, thumbing his nose at God, wanting to live his own way, we walked out with him. Our hearts have been affected. Our hearts are broken. And God sent Jesus to give us a new heart. To, as it were, circumcise the foreskin of our heart to change us internally. Does it affect us externally? Yes, but it affects us inside out. The catalyst for gospel change is not externals. It's the heart. Now, the great yearning in the heart of an authentic follower of Jesus is to offer to God a life that is worthy of him, a praiseworthy life. Now, you'll remember the term Jew. When Judah was born, his mother named him Judah to express praise to God. And it was an aspiration desiring that Judah's life would represent something worthy of God. 
Then, when the patriarch is dying, in Genesis 49, 8, again, Judah and a praiseworthy life is brought up. As Judah, you will offer to God a praiseworthy life. And so, Paul, who in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, look at verse 28, for no one is a Jew, no one has a praiseworthy life who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew. A true, authentic, praiseworthy life is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit of God, not by some external conformity to the law by the letter. And then, when our hearts are authentically remade by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, taken by the Spirit to places we could not go in new life, it is then, notice how it ends, that the praise for that heart does not come from man, but it comes from God, who over the balcony of heaven looks down and said, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. It has absolutely nothing to do with how religious they are, and everything to do with how great Jesus is at saving us and transforming our hearts and making us new and an object worthy of God. Let's pray. Father, you know the room this morning. How would you have us to respond? Help us shed any notions of religious confidence and place all of our reliance upon Jesus, a great Savior. He did it. And Lord, help us live exemplary lives that are worthy of Christ. You get a church full of people aspiring to be worthy of Christ. You have a powerful army of influence. Lord, hear us as we pray right now through the ways that you've spoken to our heart this morning. Hear us as we pray right now. Lord, use your word to make us more like Jesus. By the Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.